Uh, If you're a visitor with us, again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, It's a good week for you to be here at Ascension because uh, we uh, are starting a new series uh, today. And if we're starting a new series at Ascension, uh, what that means is we are turning our attention to a new book of the Bible uh, because that is what we do. We want to know the Lord through His Word. That is our commitment to know Him and to know His Word and uh, His counsel. And so uh, this morning we start uh, a new study in the book of Mark. And just so you know uh, where we're headed, the big picture, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, in the book of Mark, in chapter 1 of Mark. And then we will take a few weeks off from the book of Mark as we head towards Resurrection Sunday, and, uh, and then we'll return uh, back to Mark after Easter week. Before we jump into the book this morning, I want to spend some time, just a, a few minutes, even before we read the scripture that is before us this morning, just talking about this book. Uh, this is the first week that we're diving into the book of Mark, and so I want to uh, talk about uh, who Mark is, and what is this book that he has given us, that the Lord's given us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and how did he write it? What kind of book it is? And so this is kind of a lengthier than normal uh, introduction before we get to uh, the reading of Scripture, but, but listen as I go through these three questions. First of all, who was Mark? Who is Mark? The, the, the book bears his name, but who was he? Well, his full name is John Mark. And John Mark is mentioned several times in the Scripture. He is the son of Mary, the Mary who answered the door, and many of us will remember this because we just studied the book of Acts together. He is the son of the Mary who answered the door when Peter was released from prison by the angel of the Lord. And he went to the house where God's people were gathered and they were praying there and he knocked on the door and and Mary uh, answered the door after first some confusion. Mary came to the door. Well, John Mark is Mary's son. And so it's very possible that Mark, uh, his home served as the first New Testament church. John Mark is later, for those of us who remember the book of Acts, which we study, John Mark is uh, the one who later becomes the companion of the Apostle Paul, who leaves Paul in controversy. He will reconcile with Paul later in his life, and then he joins his cousin Barnabas. But really, it is John Mark, or Mark's connection with Peter, that is of most important as we begin the study of this book. The Apostle Peter wrote at the end of his book, 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Now Mark wasn't literally Peter's son, but they had formed such a significant bond that they had that kind of relationship. And it's important because the book of Mark that we're about to begin studying is some of the fruit of that relationship. Mark is the author of Mark, but behind the scenes 
is Peter's account of Jesus. And church history tells us this, and so does the context of the book. Nothing happens in the book of Mark without Peter being present. And when Peter is mentioned, it's in a very humbling, self-effacing type way. In fact, the book of Mark, as, as many of the Gospels, as one author says, the Gospels are so counterproductive. They are too counterproductive to be legends. And the fact that Peter, in this account that Mark gives us, doesn't puff himself up, but tells it like it is in all his weakness, as we'll get into in the chapters uh, to come, verifies that you can't make this stuff up. And so the author is Mark, but Peter is behind the scenes of this book. But why did Mark write this book? Why did Mark write this book? Well, simply put, the early followers of Jesus needed to hear this book. They needed to hear what Mark has to say. They needed to be reminded of their only hope. They needed to be reminded of the one who suffered for them because they themselves were suffering. The book of Mark was written somewhere around 65 A.D., 65 A.D. was in the aftermath of the great fire of Rome. It was a fire that swept through the city of Rome, destroying nearly 80% of the city. And it was a tragedy in the Roman Empire, and a tragedy that the Roman emperor at the time, Nero, decided to blame on the followers of Jesus. And so began one of the greatest periods of intense persecution in the life of God's people. Christians were fed to wild beasts. They were burned on stakes. And so they fled. They fled to the catacombs, to these Roman underground burial sites where they could meet, where they could worship. And so imagine as you're hearing the book of Mark, Christians in the first century huddled together in the dark, dim light to hear again the good news of what Jesus had done for them. To hear again of what their suffering servant voluntarily subjected himself to. That's why Mark wrote it. And then how did he write it? How did Mark write this book? Well, if the other accounts of Jesus are 12-week mini-series, the book of Mark is the 60-minute documentary. Mark's account of Jesus is the shortest and the punchiest. He moves quickly from scene to scene. He doesn't get lost in long, drawn-out scenes. Although he does love vivid details. One of the key words in the book of Mark is the word translated into English, immediately. It's used 42 times in this short book, and it's only used 12 other times in the whole New Testament. Action. Mark wants action. But he also wants emotion. Mark wants to show us not just what Jesus taught, but what Jesus was like. And this is one of the reasons why I love Mark. He wants us to know 
Jesus. There are 15 scenes of emotion, of Jesus' emotion in the book of Mark. That's more than double of any of the other gospel accounts. And it's so important because being a disciple of Jesus is not merely about knowing and following a code of ethics. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about fellowshipping with the risen Christ. And so as we launch into this study, that is my hope, that we will come to know Jesus more. And that by knowing Him more, we might love Him and embrace Him and learn to follow Him. Listen as I read with that lengthy introduction. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. When you hear those two words, words that could be a line out of any number of movies, what kind of emotions do you feel? I guess it depends, in some sense, my tone of voice, how I say it. If I say, someone's coming, perhaps there's fear, perhaps there's dread. But if I say, someone's coming, then there's emotion of relief or maybe even elation. You can see that those two words are the title of this sermon today. And as we begin this new study, it's those two words that encapsulate the ministry and the message of the man that Mark introduces us to at the very beginning of his gospel. It was an announcement, a man with a message, and an announcement that has far-reaching implications into the lives of those who hear it. And it's not just a message for those in the first century. It's one for us as well. It's one that has far-reaching implications into our lives. Because what John anticipated, as he said, someone's coming. What John anticipated, we have. The Jesus who was coming has come. 
And so as we walk through these first eight verses today, I want to frame them around three implications of that coming, of this arrival, for both the people of John's day and his original hearers, as well as you here today as you listen to these words. And they can be summed up in three words, promise, repentance, and witness. But let me give them to you in the form of points. The first one is this. Jesus has come just as God promised. Jesus has come just as God promised. You see, this passage, first of all, is about a promise kept, about a word that is true, about a word that is always true. The first verse of this book, of the Gospel of Mark, is just 12 English words, but it's pivotal for all that Mark has to say. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, let's just camp out there for just a second. Let's pick that apart. Look at the first two words. The beginning. The beginning. Do you hear it? Something epic is about to happen. The last time we've heard those words, or maybe the most significant time that we hear those words, is as they describe the dawn of time in the beginning. As they preceded God's creative power at work on this earth. And indeed we would say, and Mark would say, that the universe is about to shift again. The beginning is upon us. Everything is about to be made new. Everything is about to be recreated by the same Word that created it all. The beginning And this new beginning is the Gospel. That word has become commonplace to us in the church. We hear it all the time. Even in our world, we watch the Grammys and you hear it a lot on the Grammys. Gospel music. Gospel is a word that Mark didn't introduce. He didn't make it up. It's actually a, a word that was used widely in the Roman Empire already. It was used to describe Roman emperor worship. And it simply meant good tidings or joyful tidings, good news, but it's a word that becomes uniquely Christian. And Mark grabs a hold of this word and he says this is the beginning of the gospel. And in a sense, he creates a whole new literary form here by terming, by terming his book as the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in this book, Mark wants us to know Jesus, the one who is both Christ, the Messiah long awaited for, and the one who is the Son of God, that is, God Himself. So as we walk through the book, that is what he intends to show us. The arrival of the Messiah, of course, was rooted in ancient Jewish religion. And so he wants us to not only hear, not only hear that Jesus is coming, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise made long ago. 
And that's why our story begins not with Jesus himself, but our story begins with a man named John the Baptist. As we think about John the Baptist, let me give you another name, Paul D. Irving. Anybody know who Paul D. Irving is in our nation? Probably not. I didn't know who he was until I looked him up. He's the 36th person to hold the post of the Sergeant at Arms of the United States House of Representatives. Shame on all you U.S. history buffs for not knowing that. But among other responsibilities, Paul D. Irving is the man who says before the State of the Union address as he opens those doors of the Chamber of Congress, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And that's why I went hunting for his name. Because he is someone who introduces, who announces the coming of a person of gravity and significance. And you see, the Old Testament spoke of someone who would come, of one such herald who would prepare the way for the one that God promised. That man is John the Baptist. And it's a preparation that the Scripture says would happen in the wilderness. We say, why in the wilderness? Well, the wilderness was the traditional meeting place between God and His prophets. Between God and His people. Moses met God in the wilderness. Israel dwelt with God in the wilderness. Elijah served God in the wilderness. And so when this guy, John, shows up on the scene in the first century, looking like he's looking, talking like he's talking, people immediately, Jewish minds, went to the Old Testament. They went to passages like Isaiah 40, which Mark quotes here. For more than 300 years, God had been silent. God had not spoken through the prophets to His people. So John comes on the scene and John is, John is the splash of water in the face of God's people to wake them up. Someone's coming. He is the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus will say of John in Matthew 11, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. You see, nothing is by accident in this passage. The way John looks, where he is, God is keeping his promise. And he's declaring that to his people. And he declares it to us this morning. You see, John is intentionally in the wilderness. He intentionally looks like one of those guys that you see on the city streets holding the sandwich board that cries, the end is near. He's a rough looking dude. And he's making a statement not just of humility, a statement against the ornate excesses of religion in his day. But he's also fulfilling his life purpose as the new Elijah. God is doing what he said he would do. 
Now let's just stop there for just a moment. Drew and I watched not too long ago another one of those ESPN documentaries that I've talked about, uh, one of the sports documentaries, and it was one that was entitled The Gospel According to Mac. It's a very interesting documentary, and it was about uh, Coach Bill McCartney of the University of Colorado and his rise to prominence in the college football world, but not just his rise to prominence, but the way he coached as an evangelical Christian, as one who loved the Lord Jesus. As he rose to prominence in the college football ranks, he also created a ministry called Promise Keepers. And some of you men were involved in Promise Keepers years ago. I, I went to a promise, couple Promise Keeper events. And I, I'm not, I don't want to knock Promise Keepers. I don't want to knock that movement. God used it for His purposes. But that documentary came to mind because ultimately it's not about the promises that we keep. It's about the promises that God has kept. And that's where our focus must be. On the God who keeps His promise. And we've talked about this theme many times. And it won't be the last time we talk about it. Because the Scriptures are full of it. Because you know what, brothers and sisters? We are forgetful people. We must remember that God keeps His promises. We must remember and remind ourselves that our God can be trusted. We must recall His track record, especially in those seasons of blessings. Because it is that track record that becomes the storehouse for seasons of darkness. God's promises kept, and that storehouse becomes resources to pull from in times of difficulty. That God does what He says He's going to do. Jesus has come, just as He said, just as God promised. That's the first thing I want us to be reminded of and to think this morning as we start this study. The second is this Jesus has come. Get yourself ready. Jesus has come. Get yourself ready. Going back to that illustration about the president and the sergeant at arms, we know it's much more than just Paul Irving or whatever his name was. The president has more than someone who just announces his arrival, the president has someone who prepares the way. Next month, our president is going to make a historic trip to the nation of Cuba. I guarantee there are people there now preparing his way. Security, contingency plans, exit plans. You see, John's purpose was not just to be a splash of water in the face of God's people and say, wake up. Someone's coming, just as God has promised. Someone's coming, but John was 
a full body cleanse. That's what he was calling for, a full body cleanse in the river Jordan. Because the temperature of God's people at this time was one of indifference. It was lukewarm. God's people at this time in history were religious phonies. They were relying on their pedigree. They were relying on their man-made requirements to be right with God. They had lost Yahweh's heart. And so John doesn't just say someone's coming, but he says, repent, get ready, humble yourself, turn from your wickedness, turn back to Yahweh, turn back to His heart before the Messiah comes. And to mark this work in the hearts of God's people, He baptized them in the Jordan. Again, this was no coincidence. Remember, it was the waters of the Jordan that had ushered in the promises of God years ago as God's people walked through the Jordan into the land of promise. And what does John do essentially now among God's people? He says, enter this new exodus. There is a new exodus coming. And enter into it. But enter into it not dry, Enter into it, submersing yourself in the waters of the Jordan. Submersing yourself in the waters of judgment. The waters that consumed the Egyptians and come up delivered from your sin. You see, that was the message of John. Not just someone's coming, but you better get ready. There's one problem with baptism, and that is that God's people weren't baptized. I mean, there were ritual washings that were part of the Jewish religion, but not baptism. No, baptism was something that the Gentiles did if they came to Judaism, but not Jews. And that was exactly John's point. That was exactly part of his radical message. That getting ready for the Messiah, getting ready for this new exodus, getting ready for this epic new beginning, this cosmic upheaval that God was about to bring on the earth, was not just for them, it was for us. And John says, you need to repent, you religious folks. And it's no different. It's no different The message of the gospel that I proclaim to you this morning is for unbelievers, for those of you who have never bowed the knee, who have never trusted Christ. And the message is Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again in judgment. And if you are not right with Him, you are in peril. Get ready and repent. But the message is also for religious folks. For those who maybe we trust in our religious pedigree. Maybe we trust in this good tradition that we got going, coming to church every week. Maybe we trust in the fact that we're pretty good darn people when you get right down to it. And Jesus says, no. You need cleansing. You need to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. 
just like everyone else. Jesus has come. Get ready. And then one final thing for us to think about this morning in these opening chap in these opening verses. Jesus has come. Make it known. Make it known. I mean, that's what, this mess, that's what this passage is about. It's about John making it known that someone's coming. That God has done what He has promised. That you must be ready for His coming. And so it's not just about promise. It's not just about repentance. But it's also about witness. And we're not called in this room to be John the Baptist's. He has a unique place in the history of salvation in God's story of redemption, but his life ought to lead us to think about our own. And frankly, and we talked about this some in Discipleship Hour, I talked about this with my class, as we talked about heroes, we've been talking about hero tales, and we're looking at some of these major figures in church history, and I said, you know, fact of the matter is, in 200 years, Nate Hitchcock is not going to be, he's not going to be part of a hero's tale discipleship hour class in some church. And probably all those people in that room are not going to be heroes. And yet God is going to use you where you are in your weakness. See, as we come to John, we recognize that John, or we need to recognize that John was a big deal. He was a big deal. Lots of people were coming to him. Lots of people were being baptized by him. Jesus said about him in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, no one has, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was a big deal, and yet the reason he was a big deal was not because he made much of himself, but because because he made much of Christ. That was his purpose. For all his popularity, John was a nobody compared to Jesus. And he expresses it here in these opening verses. He expresses it later in John chapter 3. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him, He says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John is just the best man. The groom is the big deal. John simply bears witness. Jesus has come, make it known. We had a significant death in our country this year, a man, excuse me, not this year, this week, a man who was a big deal, right? One of our Supreme Court justices, Antonin Scalia, passed away this past week and his funeral was yesterday. And someone sent me the homily in the middle of my sermon preparation yesterday, the homily given at his funeral mass by his son, the Reverend Paul Scalia. Now, Antonin was a devout Catholic, but I would say that the funeral 
homily is worth watching. It was fascinating to to hear some of this man who is honored and esteemed by thousands. And I want you to, I want you I want to read to you how his son began the homily yesterday at the funeral mass of Antonin Scalia. He says, "We are gathered here because of one man." A man known personally to many of us, known only by reputation to even more. A man loved by many, scorned by others. A man known for his great controversy and great compassion. That man, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. It is He who we proclaim. It is because of Him that we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Later in the message, his son Paul said that his dad hated funerals and had written to a Presbyterian minister years ago expressing his dislike for eulogies at funerals. And so he quoted his dad's letter. And he said, my dad wrote this, even when the deceased was an admirable person, indeed, especially when the deceased is an admirable person, Praise for His virtues can cause us to forget that we are praying for and giving thanks for God's inexplicable mercy to a sinner. I don't know the heart of Antonin Scalia, but it seems as if he got it. It seems as if he understood that Jesus has come. Make it known. He understood what John the Baptist expresses, that there is another one worthy of adulation. There is indeed only one worthy. And my life is all about Him. Brothers and sisters, we are witnesses to a person. The most beautiful person who has ever walked this earth. We are recipients of His Spirit. The one John promises here in that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we are residents of a new kingdom with new priorities and new realities that are already in effect in our lives. May the world hear our cry that Jesus has come just as God has promised. Get ready. Get ready.